Thank you. Good morning. I, I wanted to go back to Genesis 3, um, and especially what we looked at the last time we were together. And so if you would turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, I would like to begin reading at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. When we were last together in Genesis chapter 3, we saw that this chapter raises the question, who should decide what is good? And Genesis gives us one Clear answer, God. After all, if we started right at the beginning, God is the creator, and all that he has created is good. And although our focus is on the first man and woman, in a sense, we see ourselves. We learn that God did it all for the pinnacle and apex of his creation. 
to make it, even as Brian reminded us, an inhabitable place. A place of delight. He puts them in the garden. And it is good. It is all good. That's the answer Genesis gives us. But there's another who gives an answer. The snake of chapter 3. The snake gives another answer. And it's not God. And it's not the snake. The answer is you. You should decide what is good. You should determine what is good. And thus the battle is drawn. And it's very important, I think, to see that the battle is not between good and evil. There's really no battle there. Good wins. God is the creator. God is good. And good's triumph is never in question. The serpent is certainly no match for God. He is a part of God's creation, verse 1. He is one of the beasts of the field. True. He's one of the wittiest, the cleverest, the most able, truly an awesome beast of the field, but God's creation. No. Good wins. God is good. His triumph has never been in question. The battle, and by the way, you really need to take that to heart. And the battle is not in question even today. Good wins. The battle that is drawn for us here is between God and you. Between God and me. Who determines what is good? Do you or does God? Are your credentials as strong as His? Is your track record as good as His? Here in Genesis, contrary to what one would think, if God wins the battle, you need to know it's good that wins. And you win too. Even if you lose to God, you win. Because God, when He wins, brings good. But it requires our surrender. It requires our trust. It requires us to acknowledge that He is the one fit to decide what is good. But if you win the battle and I win the battle, it's not good that wins. Oswald Chamber, I think, sums this up quite well. I often wonder, I, I, I hope you have at one time or another read Oswald Chambers. I highly recommend him. I think these must have been journal entries coming out of his devotions in the first draft. And now what you have is a devotional that uh, takes you throughout the entire year. But such profound thought. But in September 17th and 18th, he focuses in on temptation. And there's this thought there that I wanted to share with you. Oswald Chambers says, temptation suggests... And that's what temptation does. 
suggests. Temptation suggests a shortcut to getting the highest at which I aim. Not at what I understand is evil, but what I understand is good. We substitute the heights of our aim over the heights of God's aim. We substitute our understanding of good over against God's understanding of good. That's the subtlety of temptation. And I want to return us to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 in particular, and I want us to look now directly at the serpent. And if we focus on the serpent, there's some interesting things here. Now, this is, this is what we're introduced to. In the first verse, we're given a description of the snake. You notice that? We're given a description. He is described as a serpent and of the chief, if you will, in terms of wit and wisdom, <laughs> the chief of the animals of the field. And he, we are told that he is crafty or subtle. Then, in the second part of the verse, the snake actually communicates. And what is his opening communication? It's a question. And I want you to, to understand that. Is, uh, yes, we tend to ask ourselves what kind of question, what are the thoughts involved in that question, but it is a question, and I want you to see that. If we just step back and look at what we're, we're given in terms of his tactics, the tactics of temptation, it opens with a question. And then in verse 4, an assertion. And then in verse 5, a motivation. A motive, an incentive, a carrot. So let's look at these just a little bit more closely. In verse 1, <clears throat> we're told that the serpent is crafty or subtle. And that alerts us to the fact that temptation comes in disguise. It doesn't come at you as temptation. It doesn't telegraph its objective or its goal. Temptation is so subtle that we often don't appreciate that we're being tempted. That's very important to keep in mind. Sometimes we think that the temptations of our lives, the temptations to question what is good when it comes to God and whether He's trustworthy, those kinds of temptations don't come in such a bald, blatant, bold stance. No, they're disguised. They're disguised. Paul the Apostle in the New Testament, in two of his letters, for example, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he says, we are not ignorant. Now, what is ignorant? It means you don't know. 
So he is saying, we know what Satan is like. And he specifically says, we are not ignorant of Satan's designs. Or it could also be translated in some uh, versions, purposes. In other words, and quite literally, the word is thought. He says, we are not ignorant of the way Satan thinks. We know his way of doing business. We know his modus operandi. We know his methods. And that's interesting uh, because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul uses the exact word methods or methodeia. He says, we stand against the schemes or wiles of Satan. Schemes, wiles. In other words, we know the inner workings, see? Uh, We know the tactics, the strategies. We know the wiles of Satan. Now, what does that look like? Because I got to tell you, I... uh, I have an aversion to snakes. I have an aversion to snakes, especially deadly ones. I know I'm alone in this, but when I think about a snake, I just immediately recoil. But what Paul is saying is, the snake doesn't come as a snake. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that he can disguise himself as an angel of light. Now, you've got to remember, and this is kind of outside the scope of what I wanted to talk about this morning, but I just want to remind you that, that Satan is no match for God. Satan is not God's equal. Satan is superior to you and to me, but he is not equal to nor superior to God. Satan cannot be every place at once. He can't be tempting us all at the same time. He has thugs and lackeys for that. But more importantly, he has people to do that. He doesn't have to bother with you. He would rather be in the Bahamas on a beach than bothering with you. Because he has throngs of people who have bought into his falsehood and his lies. He has apostles. Do you know what a bellwether is? I didn't either until yesterday. I thought I knew. I thought it was like a weather vane. Bellwether, weather vane. I thought maybe it's like a rooster, you know, that uh, blows in the wind to let you know which which way the wind is blowing, but a bellwether has nothing to do with that. The reason I bring up bellwether is because in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters, I highly recommend that you read the screw tape letters. This is not for children. This is 
This is great stuff. Such insight into to living and the spiritual warfare that goes on. It would be a great investment of your time. The chapters are very short. We all like very short, quick things, right? Because we're on the move. So this is made for us. But in the screw tape letters, screw tape, who's like a chief demon, he's talking to his, you know, trainee. And he says to him, you know, the days are coming when we won't even need a bellwether. I mean, excuse me. He says we won't even need to individually tempt people any longer because we'll have a bellwether. And I thought, well, what's a bellwether? And I looked it up. And a bellwether is that sheep that leads the rest of the flock. And it would often wear a bell so you could hear him coming, but all the sheep would follow that bellwether. And what Screwtape is saying to this youngster is, the day's coming when, you know, we're not going to be so busy with this guy and then this guy and then this guy because we've got a bellwether. And you may be a bellwether. Even though in your heart you don't want to be, when you buy into the lies and you start repeating them. He says, catch, and I'm quoting, catch the bellwether, and his whole flock comes after him. Now, I love... Genesis 3, because it's kind of like a laboratory. It's a controlled experiment. God has created. Everything is good. The garden is there. Two people, first man and woman, together. The image of God. Everything is good. There's just this one tree in the middle of the garden. It is surrounded by good. It is immersed in good. But this one tree, it produces a fruit that if you eat it, it's not good. Now, that, isn't that beautiful? I mean, it just makes it so plain. It's so clear. It's so easy to see the issues. Whereas today, we're so far from the garden. It's difficult to see. We are confused. We live in confusion. And that brings me to the question of the serpent in verse 1. There it is. He plants doubt. Have you ever analyzed this question? He turns what God had said in chapter 2 inside out. He says, every tree is good for eating. And what does the serpent say? You cannot eat from every tree. And then he puts that inverted statement of God, that upside down, inside out, twisted statement of God, he puts it in a question. And it's all negative. And I find that temptation is the mathematics of the minus, of the negative. God wants you to look right past all the good that He offers you, 
all the good that through His grace He lavishes on you. And you and we what good? Well, I look over at Joni, and she's prettier than I am, or Billy, he's got more than I have. And boy, I look at the commercials, and uh, wow, when I look at the commercials, I'm impoverished. I am the poorest person on earth because I don't have this and I don't have that. And if I had that and I had this, I would be fulfilled. I would be significant. I would be prettier. I would be more powerful. I would be more important. My life is empty without all of that stuff that I don't have. There's a truth to what I'm saying, isn't there? Do you know, couples come to my office, I don't even think they think of it this way. Maybe because, you know, I'm sitting where I'm sitting, I'm able to see it. But they've come in because their marriage is so broken that they're about ready to file for divorce. And they've come to see me almost as a backdoor validation of their decision because they don't think I can help them either. Which is to say, they don't think God has an answer for them. And they just stop in to prove it. But what I'm looking at is this. I think, wow, you have so much. I, can, I, could, I could see all the couples that would love to start right where you're ready to finish. Because you already possess all that so many other couples long to have. But you have this one little problem, this one little negative that's just eating and eating and twisting and perverting and changing and altering. And now your whole life is just nothing but negative. And there are couples that would say, if I had that little problem, You see, that's the trigonometry of temptation. Let's look at the assertion in verse 4. Now, the serpent says, You shall not surely die. That one word not is the change. And it turns it upside down. But here's the thing. See, now into this context, The serpent says, I'm the new authority. You can take what I say to the bank. And what's the power of that? I mean, look, hey, you're clever, you're subtle, you're slimy, but you're no God. Why should I listen to you? Why do we listen to the snake? Because the snake professes to have your best interests. At heart. And that, that's the that's it. That's that's what hooks us. That's what sucks us in. That's what takes us down. And we do it on his authority. 
Which brings us to the motivation. Here's his incentive. It justifies our new freedom. It, it first of all, destroys God's character. You notice that? Bring God down. Bring God down. That should always be a question. That should raise the question in your mind. Wait a second. What's going on here? Bring God down and elevate me. Elevate you. That's why I say this battle, this battle is between you and God and between me and God. And it falters on a lack of trust in God. That He is good? Or if not that He is good, then I know God's good, but that's for other people. I'm not sure God really has me at heart. God isn't interested in my good. You know, that assertion, that contradiction, I can't... Have you ever noticed how many movies and stories have a central character or even a hero who lives like, you know, it just does whatever he or she wants, gets away literally with murder, uh, indulges himself in whatever, but always lands on his feet, always lives happily ever after. That's a flat contradiction to you shall surely die. I hear it. I get it. I hear the serpent. You shall not surely die. Those are the kinds of consequences that are done away with in our society, in our time. And there's that subtle insertion, even as we see it in the motivation that God is not who He says He is, and He's not really interested in your welfare. He falsifies God's character. Do you remember the story of Ruth? I love that story. And it's a powerful one, because Ruth, she marries into the family of Naomi. And it is through all of that, that uh, the Messiah is born. But the story is really quite interesting. Uh, Naomi... And her husband begins in Judea, and there's a famine, and so they go out of state. So, excuse me. So, in other words, uh, business is tough right now in California, and so we go to Nevada, because Nevada's a little more business-friendly. And while we're there, our two boys become marriageable, so we marry our boys off, and uh, they marry two Nevadans. But then tragedy strikes, and Naomi loses her husband and both of her sons. Must have been hereditary. And as a result, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, you know, there, there's nothing I can do for you now. I have nothing to give you. And so I just want to bless you and turn you loose. Remarry. Make lives for yourselves. 
You know, don't be saddled with me. I'm not going to be your burden. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to California. And so one daughter-in-law blesses Naomi and goes off. But Ruth, and this is interesting, Ruth says, and these beautiful words are in the 16th verse of the first chapter. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Well, how beautiful. This beautiful relationship, this bond is, as it were, forged by Ruth in her heart to love Naomi and stay with her. But what if an old friend... In saying goodbye to Naomi, said, Naomi, listen, don't trust Ruth. I happen to know that Ruth is out for your money. She wants to profit off of you. Don't trust her, whatever you do. It could start with a question, do you... Naomi, do you really know this girl? I mean, I know there's this uh, marital bond. She's your daughter-in-law because she married your son. But do you really know this girl? I have it on good authority that she wants to profit off of you. There's your assertion, you see. What I would do is leave her behind and protect yourself. Well, you see how this works? All of a sudden, anything Ruth does that's good from the heart has been poisoned and tainted. It's toxic now. You just see further deception and deceit. Are we that good at judging the good? Reminds me of uh, Joni Mitchell's big yellow taxi. Toxie had toxic on my mind. The big yellow taxi. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Why is it that tragedy has to teach us what is good? Now, I love happy endings. When uh, happy endings are wrecked because of a hero's all-too-human personal weakness like a character flaw or a mistake. The Greeks call that tragedy. Most tragic heroes were voted most likely to succeed. And that's because it heightens the tragedy and the depth of the fall. Two tragic figures that I could just, I could, just some names here, just right away. I think you'll know what I'm talking about. Lindsay Lohan. Charlie Sheen. Well, I saw Lindsay Lohan years ago for the first time. I think I was at my brother-in-law's house over Thanksgiving weekend, and they put Freaky Friday in to watch. A good, wholesome 
kids show. And here's this girl, Lindsay Lohan, this young lady. What a talent. What a future. What a happy ending I see for this girl. Or Charlie Sheen, he comes from this, you know, incredible acting family. I saw him in what was um, Red Dawn. Red Dawn, a movie that probably no one in here has ever seen. But he was in that. And I thought, this kid's got a bright future. A happy ending. I can see it. Wow. To have all of that opportunity, all of that potential, all of that good. Tragedy. Happy ending wrecked by human weakness, mistakes. By the way, in Greek tragedy, mistakes are called sins. Same word Paul uses for sin in the New Testament. Falling short, missing the target. At any rate, a tragic hero is redeemed by learning from his mistakes, from his weaknesses. You know, learning from your mistakes may not recover what you've lost, but it transforms you. You grow. You lead a better life. A tragic hero becomes a comic figure when he learns nothing from his mistakes, repeats his mistakes, wallows in his failures. You see, that hero is no longer tragic, but comic, because he exhausts our capacity to pity him. I see this happening with contemporary tragic figures who are celebrities or in the public eye. We cheer them on. But when their human weakness causes them to fall and their faulty judgment causes them to make mistakes and they repeat the mistake and they wallow in it and they glory in it, then society steps back and says, what a joke, what a fool. There's no pity anymore. Tragedies are powerful because we can learn from their mistakes. We can learn from the mistakes of others. Adam and Eve? Tragedy. We can learn from their mistakes. I do have a question for you. Can you learn from your own mistakes? When I was a, when my daughter was still, hmm, yeah, when she was still at home, just about to take off, you know, she was flapping her wings a lot. Hope she's not here. Hannah Montana came along. Hannah Montana, idolized by the girls. And 
And parents loved it too. Loved it that they loved Hannah because she was just a neat kid. And it was wholesome and healthy. And we need some heroes out there. And these girls loved Hannah Montana. But then we realized that behind Hannah Montana is Miley Cyrus. You know, Hannah Montana follows a carefully scripted writing. But human life, Miley Cyrus, we write our own script, sometimes on the fly, sometimes on the spur of the moment. And now there are these scandals surfacing. Little Hannah Montana is now 18. And on her 18th birthday... Oh, those pesky YouTube videos. Shows her smoking a bong. Her dad, Billy Ray Cyrus, tried to help her. And it was a real wake-up call for him. Because her handlers told him, it's none of your business. And so now in the news, we're hearing from Billy Ray Cyrus, and he was interviewed in Gentleman's Quarterly, GQ. I don't get GQ, but I wanted to read that article. So I got online and read it for free. He blames the business. He says it, and I quote, it drove a wedge. It's driving a wedge between us. But he also blames himself. He wanted to be Miley's friend and not her parent. In countless interviews, he says this. I, I, I took pride in the fact that I was her friend and not her parent. And other parents would caution him and warn him, Billy Ray, Miley needs a parent more than she needs a friend. She needs you to be her parent. But you see the way this this temptation, man, we're just swimming and it's like, what is good? Well, I think what's good is for me to be Miley's friend. That's what I find more flattering. You see, sometimes what's right in our heads is not what's good. What's right in our heads is what's good for me. He writes, or he is quoted in this article as saying, well, I'm the first guy to say to them right now, you were right. I should have been a better parent. I should have said, enough is enough. It's getting dangerous and somebody's going to get hurt. I should have, but I didn't. Honestly, I didn't know the ball was out of bounds until it was way up in the stands somewhere. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. That is, that is just stupid living. Because we can know God and we can know what is good. But we're looking right past it all the time because the world is out there like a snake 
saying, you ought to decide what's good. And I got to tell you, you don't have it, so you better get it. But you know what was really powerful to me in this interview? He's been soul-searching. And he's looking at where it all went wrong. Now, we'll just take his word for it. But he goes all the way back to 2001 in a movie that he had the opportunity to, to be in. And because he accepted this role in this movie, it opened all kinds of doors. And he can, he can document a direct connection between that particular movie and the director and what happened with the opportunity for Hannah Montana. But this is an interesting thing, he says. His part, which was small, Gene the pool man, nonetheless managed to combine adultery and violence. It's such a small little thing. It's just, a, it's just a character. And then he says, I did feel a little bit dark. I remember feeling this might not be what God had in mind. His words, this might not be what God had in mind. But it's a small thing. And so now he goes all the way back to that subtle, simple little, this might not be what God had in mind. And now he has people who've only known his daughter for months or a couple of years telling him, she's none of your business. And you want to somehow unwind it all and go back and do it over again. You know, in verses 9 through 13, God walks through the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? And of course, he replies, I'm hiding because I'm naked. How'd you know you're naked? Did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from? And what does he say? The woman who you gave to me. She gave me the fruit. And so God goes to Eve and to the woman. And she says, that snake. Isn't that interesting? Now, what's, what's profound to me is these are very accurate statements. There's, there's, this is descriptive. This is, it's what happened. The woman that you made for me gave me that fruit and I ate it. And then when he talks to Eve, Eve says, that snake, he deceived me. These are all true statements. But what's interesting to me 
is how selective it is. You see, it's, I can sum up their answers in two words. Not me. Which means, it's all about me. That is the point of vulnerability. It's kind of like, you know, some pastors say, being a pastor would be great if there weren't any people. It just seems to gum everything up, you know. I'd like to be a shepherd without sheep. And so we'd like to have temptation without people because temptation just wouldn't work without people. We are the weak spot in this whole thing. This is the problem, you and me, and the choice is me or God. So I want to give you a suggestion as we close. Will you stand with me? Satan is so crafty, he'll take even what I'm going to say here and probably use it against you. But I'm going to tell you something that I think will really help us when it comes to temptation. Because if, if, if it's all about me, then I have to get my eyes on the Lord and off of me. And there's a way that you can do this that will not only get your eyes on God and off of yourself, but it will get your eyes on the good. And that is to become a grateful people. You see how easy this is to say thank you, to appreciate all the good in your life so that you don't just look past it, looking around for the next thing, but realizing all that you have. Count your blessings. That's another way of saying it. But in each and every situation, you need to learn to practice this. Uh, uh, I'm not going to give you specific steps. You are smart people. You can do this. You just have to decide whether you're going to do it. To start practicing gratitude. Now, I'll tell you what happens when you practice gratitude. You'll not only begin to enjoy life more because you'll begin to realize all the good in your life. You'll begin to realize the riches in your life. But you'll also start to gravitate in looking at God, because you'll realize that it all ultimately comes from His hand. And you'll begin to see the people around you, not as your enemies or people who get in the way, but as the many people who contribute to you and help you and support you and encourage you and even make the things you enjoy possible. And you will become a source of good because you will be recognizing God's grace in your life. Maybe we'll talk about that some more sometime, but I just wanted to leave you with that thought. You can arm yourselves against temptation and practice acknowledging God in your life by practicing gratitude. And gratitude is an acknowledgement of His grace, His favor, His generosity, His lavish goodness. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we do love You. We know how uh, weak we are, but we know how strong you are. And we want to validate that in the practices of our lives, Lord, by trusting you 
and acknowledging you. We truly want to be like you. We want to be like Jesus. And we thank you, Lord, for such a loving Redeemer and all your goodness to us. May this week, we pray, we exemplify an acknowledgement of your grace and your goodness in our lives. Make us increasingly impervious to the wiles of Satan. To your glory, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, God bless you, you're dismissed. This has been a production of Grace Community Church of Visalia. For more information, go to our website at www.gccvisalia.org or for more sermons, go to gccvisalia.org slash podcast.